Well, if you didn't get a sheet, there is uh, there are probably some left, and I don't know if Phil has any left or not. But if you didn't get one, too bad. Uh, it is kind of a continuation from last week's. So if you could uh, uh, just, we have an extra sheet added to what we were doing last week. We're calling this "Thy Kingdom Come," and that probably a very familiar phrase from the Lord's Prayer, or what is called the Lord's Prayer, his model for prayer. And sometimes I wonder, you know, uh, when, it, when it talks about the kingdom, what kingdom was Jesus talking about? Because he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, uh, this is not the kingdom that we are to establish here as the church. This is not the kingdom that is going to be involved, you know, with us. It is the kingdom that God promised to Israel. And this is one of the reasons Satan hates Israel. You know, it's too late for him to keep a, a Jewish savior, a Jewish Messiah from being born. It's too late for that to be kept from happening, although he tried everything he could to keep it from happening. It's too late. But out of spite, I'm sure he still hates Israel because of the fact that the Messiah, the one who will destroy and reverse everything that he's done, came through Israel, the nation of Israel. That's, that's enough reason for Satan to hate Israel. But there's another one, too, because it has not to be, it's not about something in the past that Israel has done. It's something in the future that is true about Israel. That one day there will be a kingdom here on earth, on this very ground that we walk on right now. It'll be under the dominion of that Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the whole world will be under his dominion. And it, it means that Satan will no longer have that dominion. It means that the scepter of ruling this world will be taken from Satan's grip and given to the Messiah. And he knows that that's the promise in Scripture. He knows it better than many Christians know it. Satan knows that that's what the Scripture promised. And out of spite for what, has, what Israel has uh, provided, the Jewish Messiah, that is the Savior of the whole world, and out of fear for what's coming, that one day his rulership of this world will end, and it will be given to a Jewish Messiah. And he will reign here in this world. And that's why Satan hates Israel. We can see that there are people who hate Israel. I know that's, that's, a, that's an obvious fact. There are people who hate Israel and want to destroy them, and the Jewish people. But what they, the reason that they hate Israel has a, a you could say, behind-the-scenes reason. It has another reason, and it's a Satan-inspired hatred for God's people, Israel. Whatever they did, all the horrors that they accomplished, I, I really think the scripture teaches it didn't just come from their imaginations, but it was inspired by Satan. You almost think that it has to be, right? I mean, the atrocities that were committed just on October 7th towards the Jewish people are one in a long, long series and line of atrocities that have happened again and again in history. And I can't think of any people that have endured as much as Israel has of hatred. And if you're thinking that just comes from the human mind, if, if there's nothing more, there's a spiritual battle that's going on against Israel. And when, when Jesus prays, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, 
I believe that he's talking about this kingdom. The kingdom that was promised in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, and other places in the scriptures where it says, in the days of these kings, that's talking about the ten kings in this metallic statue dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. It says, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. It says that there is a time in human history when God's going to blow the whistle and say, everybody out of the pool, as far as the Gentile kingdoms go, they're over with. And God's going to, the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom on earth. When Jesus was praying or telling his disciples what to pray for, he says, pray this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is not something we as a church are given as a commission to accomplish. It is the God of heaven who will set up this kingdom, not the church of Land Lakes. It is not our purpose, it is not our goal to bring the kingdom of Christ here. It says the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. So he's not looking to see that we make this world somehow acceptable for him. I'm sure you've gotten calls before uh, from relatives or something. Hey, I'm coming over for Christmas. And then all of a sudden, after you hung up the phone, you said, well, I need to get busy cleaning this place up. And some people think that's the church's job. Christ wants to come back. He wants to come to earth and set up his kingdom. But we need to clean up the earth first. That's not it. This is something that the church is going to witness, but we are not. The focus of this kingdom. It is Israel, and that's why he hates Israel. All right, well, let's see some proof of this, because it's, it's one thing to say that, but does the scripture back that up? You know, it says in scripture, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What it means by being a workman, we talked about last week. I'm not quite sure that it means when it says rightly dividing the word of truth, that it's meaning what I and saying right now. But it could be meaning this, because you ever think about that? Rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, we know the word of truth is divided. We know there's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament, right? So at least we know, you know, when it comes to that part of it, there's some major divisions in the Bible. There are books of the Bible, those kinds of things. But it, it could mean that the Bible is divided, or history, human history is divided into segments, and that these segments are important to recognize when you read your Bible. Now, many of you instinctively recognize there are parts of the Bible that all, although are spoken God's, you know, God's word, and they're inspired God's word, they're not talking to you. You instinctively know that when God says, take a lamb and kill that lamb and, and put the blood on the doorpost of your house and stay in that house until, you know, the death angel passes over, you instinctively know that's not something I'm supposed to do. You know, it's a, in a way, you could say this, you don't have to do everything the Bible says. Now, that's shocking, isn't it? But that's basically what that means. You don't have to do everything the Bible says. Now, let me, let me rephrase it. I am responsible to do everything the Bible says to me. In other words, what it tells me to do. But there are things that are written in the Bible that are speaking to other people and not us, and we instinctively know that. So those segments that we're talking about here, we're giving them a name. It could refer to these segments, which are called uh, dispensations. 
that we need to recognize them when we read our Bible. Now, a dispensation is often called a, a period of time, and it's really not. You know, in fact, last week I might have left you with that impression that a dispensation is a period of time, whereas it's more of an administration. It is a God-chosen way that he decides on his, in his own sovereignty to minister to the world in a certain way. And so it can be different according to his sovereign will. He's decided to do things differently and to administer what he wants done here in this world in different ways. Now, he is perfectly capable of doing that. And, of course, it's his right to. So I can see five different administrations or dispensations, although there are more, some people think. There's the dispensation of innocence. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, they were told certain things to do. They were told, you know, to keep the garden. They, were, they had certain conditions that they worked in that are not the same as the world we live in. So when you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis beginning of Genesis 3, and you see the, you know, the things that Adam and Eve were, were doing, we are not to think that that's the kind of conditions that we live in. In other words, there's another segment of the Bible. It's called the dispensation of conscience. It's, it's called from the, I, I term it, from the fall to the law. I know that's a time period, but basically it's this, that God, after people sinned, after people fell, after the curse of sin came upon all parts of this creation, God had written in people's minds his laws, that he gave them what we call a conscience. And that conscience can either give you a pat on the back when you do the right thing, or it can give you a slap across the face when you do the wrong thing. And that conscience is something that every single human being is born with. Every single human being will be accountable to God about what's right and what's wrong because God gave them that, into, that conscience that's in them. And if you say, well, my conscience is me, no, it isn't. Have you ever argued with your conscience? Have you ever said, you know, I don't think that was really that bad. Everybody's doing it. And your conscience won't let go? Have you ever had that? Listen, if your conscience was you, you would have no problem. It, it, the thing is about this time period where God hadn't given his laws specifically on Mount Sinai. He hadn't given the Ten Commandments. He hadn't given to Israel his, all the other commandments and, and things and haven't been revealed. Why? Does God hold them accountable? It's because he had given them conscience. And for that reason, they were held accountable. Then there's the dispensation of the law. And so God gives, you could say, through Israel, to Israel, he gives a more detailed description of holiness, of what's right, what's wrong. And of course, that's one thing about this, the difference between conscience and law. You know my conscience can be seared? I have on my fingers, on my left hand, calluses. Anybody guess why? Because I play the guitar. At first, it hurt like crazy. In fact, there were times when I was in high school when I first started playing guitar, I wanted to quit. Because every time I would pick it up, it was torture. And all I had at the beginning was a two-string guitar. But those two strings really hurt. But you know what? They don't hurt anymore because I got calluses. People's consciences that can bother them, bother them, bother them, bother them, bother them, bother them, bother them. 
it can be, it can be seared. It can be quietened. Right? But that's the thing about the law. God wanted to give his law in a written form because that is one thing that doesn't change. Now, he gave it specifically to Israel. He made a covenant with Israel. Not America, not Russia, not, not anybody else, but the nation of Israel and the Jewish people that between the Jewish people and him, they would have this covenant about the keeping of the law and blessings that would come from it. Then there's a the dispensation of the church. I love this one because this is the one I live in. I live in a time of administration that it can be also called the age of grace. If the law shows God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice, I live, and what a privilege, I live in a time period that emphasizes God's grace. Are you glad you live in the age of grace? I sure am, every day. And so in this age of the church, with a capital C, because I'm not talking about this this locality here, the church at Land Lakes. We're talking about a universal body of Jesus Christ that is made of Jews and Gentiles who come equally by faith and are placed into one body, the church. And you're probably saying, well, I, I can't see it. Well, it started at Pentecost when the first people there believed, there were thousands of them that, that believed Peter's preaching, and they became part of the church. And it goes to the rapture when God takes out his children. Just like you would pull out uh, of the way, your child out of the way of a cement truck that was coming towards them. You would take them out. There is coming a troublesome time for this world, and God's going to take his church out of it before that troublesome time hits. It could be right now. But we live in this special dispensation called the church, and it is, of course, an age where God is showing his grace. There's the dispensation of the kingdom, though. Now, that's why we're talking about dispensations, because we have to differentiate between the age and the time and the dispensation, the segment of, of God dealing with people and history called the church, and we need to differentiate that from this coming period called the kingdom. It's not the same. Now, the people that are in the church will witness it. They'll be a part of it. I believe personally it will be consorts of the king. Well, who was it that uh, Queen Elizabeth II, who just passed away, her husband, what was his name? Philip. He wasn't king, was he? She was the queen. Right? He was a consort. And the church will be a consort for the king, but the focus is Israel. The, the king here on earth is a Jewish man, Jesus. So Israel's going to be the focus in the kingdom. So it's from the revelation of Christ to the great white throne judgment, and it's found in Revelation 20. All right. So three of these dispensations are in the past. Which ones? Congregation, which ones? Innocence, conscience, the law. One is in the present. What is that? The church. And I'm not saying they don't overlap. They do. They do overlap. Okay, so in, in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm just simplifying things too much. But one definitely is in the future. What is that? The kingdom. All right? So the kingdom is in the future. All right? We looked at some verses in the Bible, and it's a great exercise that you do this every time you read any verse in the Bible, that you place it into the right dispensation. Who's being spoken to here? For instance, 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their land. What dispensation is that being, uh, is that being said in? 
2 Chronicles 7, 14. Which dispensation? Well, it's dispensation of the law. If my people is not referring to the church, in other words. If my people is not referring to us here at First Baptist. In its direct context, if my people's talking to Israel, what you call by my name? I don't know. Let me see. America. What part of the word America or United States has the name of God in it? None of it. We are not called by God's name. Russia? China? How about Israel? You know the E-L part is God's name. My people, which are called by my name. He's talking to a specific group of people called Israel who have this covenant that he's made with them under the law about their particular obedience. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. You know, he's talking to Solomon here. The Lord's talking to Solomon. And he's talking about the future of Israel. And one of the things he's trying to make really clear to them is that because they're his special people, he will discipline them if they stray from his walls. He will discipline them. But if they will humble themselves and pray, all right? Their land had been cursed during the time of discipline. It stopped raining. During the time of discipline, the locusts came. All right, whatever happened to them as a nation during the time of God's discipline, he says, I'll reverse that. All you need to do, Israel, is pray, seek my face, and I will heal your land. That's the land that he promised to them. Folks, it's so clear. If you will do this, every time you read a verse in the Bible, place it in its context with what segment or dispensation is being addressed here, you might not make the mistake that many are doing and using that very same verse as applying directly to them. It doesn't apply to America. Now, I don't know, but if you claim a promise that was never made to you, do you have any right to be disappointed when it doesn't come true? I think that rhymed. I'm going to try to say that. <laughs> if you claim a promise that wasn't made to you, do you have any right to be disappointed when it doesn't come true? You have no right. The promise was never yours, and you claimed it. So, you know, it's, a, it's interesting in 1 Chronicles 4.10 especially, says, and Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed, and enlarge my coast, and that mine hand that my, thine hand might be with me, and that thou wouldest keep me from evil, that it may not grieve me. And God granted him that which he requested. Folks, we talked about this last week, but I can't help it. I want to emphasize this. It is so important because Christians are gullible. They'll spend millions of dollars. I'm not talking about individually, but all the Christians buying gifts, buying books, buying things about this particular prayer. And they'll make their prayer life a model. They'll model their prayer life after the prayer of Jabez. And this is a Jewish man praying under the covenant that God had made with him under the law through Israel. And it is not a kind of covenant that he's made with the church. So you have to, if you want to take this prayer and say, oh, I, I'm going to pray this prayer because I think God is going to do that for me. When it says, uh, enlarge my coast, that literally means give me more land. I need more land. God, give me more land. You know how Caleb, remember how Caleb came and, uh, to Joshua and others and said, listen, I want more, more, I want more land. Joshua didn't say, what a greedy man. Why are you so greedy? No, God said, that's faith. That land of Canaan was not yet all conquered, and you want to, by God's power, conquer more of it. 
That was perfectly okay. But that is not the part, that is not what the church has been promised, a piece of land and we want more of it. I have a third of an acre, I want a half acre. I'll pray this prayer, enlarge my coast. Now, of course, my neighbor's gonna have less coast, right? Look at, uh, so what, what, what dispensation is that? The law. Look at this one, Genesis 4.12. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength, a fugitive, and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. Anybody know who's being spoken to here? Cain is being spoken to. What did he just do? He murdered his brother Abel, right? What's the penalty? He's to be a fugitive. He's to run. He's to be a vagabond. He's to be homeless. I guess. I don't know. It, 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 Cain probably went out and started a city, but he's stuck. Leave town. Leave town. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of you have ever read that about Cain in, in, in Genesis chapter 4 and thought, wait a second, he got away with murder. It's interesting because people who, who don't think of these in the form of dispensations can be easily confused and think the Bible's contradicting itself. Because it says, okay, that was under the dispensation of conscience. It says in Exodus 21, 12, he that smiteth a man so that he dies shall be surely put to death. That's the same God. The one that says that to Cain, you're going to be a fugitive, a vagabond. You're going to go wandering all around the world. And uh, that's what you get for murdering your brother. He's the same God who says in the book of Exodus, if anybody kills somebody, they die. If anybody murders, they die. Have you ever been confused when you read your Bible? Have you ever been thinking, hey, why is it that Cain can get away with that? And then... In Exodus, he says people are to be executed when they murder somebody. Well, folks, we're talking about a different dispensation, aren't we? Under the dispensation of the law, that's the way it was supposed to be. By the way, if you're wondering, why did God ever do the dispensation of conscience where, you know, what happened to Cain and, and his punishment? What eventually did it lead to? Noah's flood. A huge judgment. A world that was so wicked, it's even making our, that world back then makes our world look like a picnic in the park. The world before the flood, during the time of the conscience. And if you're wondering, why did God do that? Because he wanted to show us. <laughs> That's what people will do. All right, so under the law, of course, he has a different rule. Genesis 2.15, and the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. What dispensation is that? Right. You know, it's funny, they were supposed to dress the garden, but they didn't have to dress themselves. You know, the, the fact is, that's not the dispensation we live in. The people that are in Lutz and in Land of Lakes that think differently. Sometimes they look at the Bible and say, hey, we're just doing what they did in the Garden of Eden. You understand how, how horrible it is to take the Bible out of its context. You can try to justify everything. And you, you know, the fact is, this is the most dangerous book in the world. Just like electricity is extremely dangerous. Atomic energy is extremely dangerous. In fact, the more powerful something is, the more dangerous it could be. And there's nothing more powerful than the scriptures. And when people take the scriptures out of their context and tell other people, this is the way it's supposed to be, and those people don't look, they aren't educated enough 
I'm not talking about educated as far as schooling goes. I'm just talking about they don't know enough about the Bible to, to see that. Wait a second. There's, there's different time periods in the Bible. And that's one, and we live in a different one. We're not living in the Garden of Eden. Things are different. All right, how about this? Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with, all thy, with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. Okay, that's, that's really a very popular verse. There's probably a lot of, uh, of faith healers. There's probably a lot of people who, who you know, are, are using this verse to get Christians to give money to them. And if you give 10, you'll get 100. If you give 100, you get 1,000. If you get 1,000... And you're saying, no, Tom, nobody would ever fall for that. Well, they see that in the Bible. And, and, and they give their money, and they're gullible about that. Why? Why is it that that's not something talking to us? Well, what dispensation is it? Dispensation of the law. And that was something that God told Israel that he was going to, you could say, manifest his blessings. He was going to show Israel exactly when he was blessing them by the fact that they had physical blessings, the rain, the, the prosperity, all those things in the land, victory over their enemies, all those things were going to be signs that God is blessing us and we are on the right track. But that's not the way he deals with the church. You know, with the church, we do not give to be blessed. We give because we are blessed. There's a whole different motivation. So this is under the dispensation of church. Listen to this. It says, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, we have been made to drink into one spirit. That's in the age of the church. Because it says in Psalm 51, 11, Cast not away thy from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David saying these words? Have you ever thought, wait a second. Why is it the Bible saying one thing in one place and another thing in another place? If you understand the dispensations and the time periods and who's being spoken of here, these are not contradictions. During the Old Testament time, the Holy Spirit only came and rested upon people for certain purposes and a certain period of time, and that God could take it from them. It wasn't his, their salvation being taken from them, but the Holy Spirit could be taken. And when David sinned with Bathsheba, that was one of the results. The Holy Spirit that was empowering him as a great king, he recognized is gone. Or is going to leave. And he says, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. But that's never a prayer you have to pray. It is not something because look, um, it, in the law, that's what he prayed. Look what we have as a promise in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Promise made to the church. Look what it says. In whom ye also trusted. After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in whom also after that you believed you were steeled with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, until the praise of his glory. What a difference. The Holy Spirit, one of the things that distinguishes our particular dispensation is that the Holy Spirit no longer comes and goes on believers or individuals, that it comes at the moment you believe and seals you so that you are, and you could say, you have the best down payment on your salvation ever possible. God's Holy Spirit living in you. How do you know you're going to have... Well, you know, if I go to hell after I trusted Christ as Savior in 1972, if any time after that I go to hell because I... Here's why. I had received the Holy Spirit when I believed, and it sealed me. If I go to hell, who goes with me? 
The Holy Spirit must. Because it says that I'm sealed until the redemption of the purchased possession. You know, what a difference. And it's not a contradiction. It's the way God dealt with David and with those people and the way he deals with you. And that's why, again, I'm glad I live in this time. It says in Hebrews 13:5, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You notice in the church age, if Jabez read this, would his prayer be inappropriate? If this was speaking to Jabez, wouldn't his prayer be inappropriate? Give me more. Give me more. That's the sign of your blessing me, God. Give me more. When it says to the church, he speaks to the church, he says, be content with what you have. That's, it's not a contradiction. It's a difference in the dispensation, in the way God administers things. How about this one? Malachi 3.10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that you may have, uh, that there may be meat in my house and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall be not be room enough to receive it. And what is that? Dispensation of law. But have it, Christians ever claimed this? Have they ever said, that's a promise to me? Well, this is something that's not written to us. It's written to Israel under the covenant of the law, and, of course, the evidence of the blessings that God would give unto that. How about Isaiah 65, 25? The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like a bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's feet. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, saith the Lord. All right, finally we get to the kingdom. The dispensation of the kingdom. How about this? And they were both righteous before God, walking in the commandments and ordinance of the Lord blameless. This is, of course, talking about John the Baptist's parents. What dispensation were they living in? Under the dispensation of the law. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are still under the dispensation of the law. It says that Jesus was born, as Galatians 4, verse 1 uh, in Galatians 4 says, born under the law. He was born in the dispensation of the law. The dispensation of the church didn't start to after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So all those gospels, those time periods are in the dispensation of the law. When Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's easy for the church to take that. Okay, I'm going to seek the kingdom of God. But that's not talking to the church. The king was there. He's talking to Israel. And he's telling them, lay aside everything, everything that you think matters right now. Seek the kingdom. The king was right there. Would they accept him as king? There's, there's the congregation. There's a whole, whole wonderful opening of the scriptures and their meaning. If you would just apply the dispensations to the context of whatever you're reading. And then be strict about it. All right, how about this one? And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. What is that? All right, so... John the Baptist's parents were righteous before God's sight, keeping the commandments, all right? As far as the law is concerned, they were keeping it blamelessly. That's fine. But that's not what the Apostle Paul says during the church age that we have. We have something better. We don't have our righteousness at all. What we have is the righteousness that God imputes to us, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So that particular righteousness far exceeds anything the law could give us. How about Isaiah 56, 7? Even then will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. 
For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. What time period is that talking about? That's the kingdom. You know, Jesus used this when he cleaned the temple. He says, my house is going to be, my, don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all people. That's talking about the Gentiles coming during the kingdom. The Gentiles coming to Jerusalem and worshiping Jehovah. All right. So this is just a quick uh, summary of the flow of these. But I'd like to close with this. Characteristics of the kingdom. First off, the first five characteristics of the kingdom that we're talking about here are taken from the Old Testament, and the last five are taken from the New Testament. Let's go first, and if you were turning your Bible to Daniel chapter 2. It says in Daniel chapter 2, in verse 34 and 35, in this vision of the metallic statue that he sees, thou sawest, or that he interprets for Nebuchadnezzar II, Thou sawest till a stone which was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon the feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like a chaff of the th summer threshing floors. I'm in Daniel 2, verse 35. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. Then the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole what? Okay, so as I said at the beginning, in verse 44, it says, and in these days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. It is on earth. So the first thing about the kingdom that we're talking about here, <clears throat> there's already a kingdom in heaven. It is the fact that there's not God's kingdom here on earth. And God will set up a kingdom on earth in the future. Next characteristic is centered in Jerusalem. Look at Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2. Yes, when you look at a picture of Jerusalem and all its troubles today, and you see the uh, Temple Mount with the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim shrine there, and the Muslim mosque that they have there, when you see all that, folks, you are looking at the center of the, of the kingdom. That's where the headquarters for the kingdom is going to be. That's where the king himself will reside, Jesus Christ. And I'm looking at Isaiah 2. Look at verse 1. The word, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and what? Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. I'm in verse 3. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from where? Jerusalem. It is not just enough to say that Israel one day uh, or the earth is going to be the location of this kingdom. Jerusalem will be its center. Next, it's ruled by the favored son of David. Here's some Christmas verses that, uh, that really, just like that song, Joy to the World, they aren't really Christmas yet verses. Joy to the World is not talking about the birth of Jesus. It says, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let all the earth receive their what? I don't know if I'm singing it right. Let all the earth receive their king. All right? That's not talking about Christmas. That's talking about the coming of the king at his second coming when he establishes his kingdom. And Isaiah 9, look at verse 6, is referring to that. For unto us a child is born. Okay, that's Christmas. Unto us a son is given. And the government 
it says, shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And the, of the increase of the, his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In other words, God is very enthusiastic about this. The fact is that a descendant of David is going to rule in Jerusalem in God's kingdom on earth, a human being, Jesus Christ. He will be the king. He is a son of David. We, we know that from the Christmas story. Next, it is a time of righteousness and peace. Look at Isaiah 11. Some of my favorite descriptions of the coming kingdom. All right, this, this time where Jesus reigns on the earth from Jerusalem. It says in Isaiah 11, there, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Who is Jesse? David's father, okay. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him a quick understanding and the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. I tell you, when this king reigns on earth, when this kingdom comes on earth, the domain of Jesus Christ is going to be characterized by two things that this world does not have. Peace and righteousness. They will be the main characteristics of the coming kingdom. And if you think the coming kingdom can be brought by our efforts, it will never happen. We are here to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ dying for the sins of the world, that anybody can be saved by faith in him. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The cross for everybody. The empty tomb is evidence that the cross took care of our sins. Now we can be forgiven and have a home in heaven. But this is this particular time of righteousness and peace. This will be something extinct. You know why these will be extinct in the kingdom? What is the purpose of keys? To open locks. What is the purpose of locks? To keep stuff from being stolen. So I would tell you this. Get ready for during the kingdom. Your keys are history. The locking your doors, locking all your windows, Hiding in your homes. All those things are going to be over with because it is a time of peace and righteousness. I'm not talking about just between people. The king will enforce the peace. It says he'll rule with a rod of iron. That means that there, it's not just because everybody's so good in the kingdom. It's because the king is so powerful. And he knows everybody's thoughts. Right? So he, crime will have no chance. If you hear a, a car honking, that's probably mine right now. <laughs> Let me know if you do. Look what it says in verse 5. On verse 4. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity. All right, verse 5. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also will dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. That's talking about a little lamb. And the calf and the young lion and the fat lead together and a little child shall lead them. Okay, that, that particular picture is pretty, pretty dangerous right now for a little kid to try to get a lamb and a, and a lion together and leave them with a leash. 
But there's coming, this is, this is saying that the peace and the righteousness that are going to be in the coming kingdom are not, nothing you've ever seen now. It is not just a peace between people, but even between nature. Forget all those National Geographic pictures or, or videos of the, of the lion chasing down the well of the beast or whatever, and, and everybody turns away. I can't watch this. That's the way this world works, but that's not the way the kingdom's going to work. I, I think this is wonderful. And, and congregation, this is not going to be on some planet. Differ from It's here. It's going to be here. What's missing? The king. Not us. What's missing is the king. But he'll, he's coming. Look at this next one, and we've got to hurry through these. It is worldwide in extent. I'm not going to go back to Daniel chapter 2, but it did say that it fills the whole earth. The mountain fills the whole earth. In other words, it's not going to be in one side of the world, there's still the Gentile kingdoms, and they have all their you know, armies ready to attack the Christ kingdom. No, it's going to fill the whole world. Next thing, it contains both saved and unsaved people, according to Matthew 13. Now, this is a little controversial, because some people say Matthew 13 is not talking about the kingdom. All I want to show you is one reference of why I think it is. But look where it says in Matthew 13, Jesus giving these parables. And this was the one about the tares and the wheat. Remember the tares and the wheat? Okay, so two kinds of crops growing in the same field, and uh, they are allowed to grow together, according to the parable. And I'm looking in, in, uh, in Luke chapter 13, verse 24. I'm sorry, Matthew. Did I say Luke? Matthew chapter 13. All right, Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. It says, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, and what are the next words? The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So if you think the kingdom is just full of saved people, I, it says, here's Jesus giving a parable about what the kingdom is like, right? And he's not talking about any kingdom that was there in, in, in history until this future kingdom that he himself rules. And he says, there are going to be the saved and unsaved people there during the time of the kingdom. Evil grows and spreads. It says in Matthew 13, verse 31, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a grain of mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And it grows into a huge plant. And then a lady takes some yeast, some leaven, puts it in a lump of dough, a little bit of yeast, and it fills the whole dough. So evil grows during the coming kingdom, there will be um, unsaved people, and there will be evil, and its influence will grow. And if you're thinking, wait, wait, that's not supposed to happen, crisis there. Well, listen, every dispensation shows something, either about God or about us. So the world, the flesh, and the devil, are they all right here now? <laughs> Do we struggle with the world? Yes. Do we struggle with our flesh? Yes. Do we struggle with the devil? Yes. <laughs> all, all three. During the kingdom, the world as far as kingdoms go, it's going to be under the control of Christ. The devil's going to be bound for a thousand years. What's left? The flesh. And just showing human depravity, that even under the kingdom and the paradise that Christ sets up, evil still grows and spreads. And it ends with a judgment, Matthew 13, 47 through 50. And the last thing I want to say here, Satan is bound during the kingdom. Will you turn to Revelation chapter 20. Let's close with this. Revelation chapter 20. These are some characteristics of the coming kingdom. And it says in Revelation 20, verse 1, 
In these six verses, it describes this kingdom, tells a lot about it. It says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him how long? Now, as I continue reading, will you see how many times it says thousand years? Right? That was one. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should de uh, deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a, a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on the which the second death had no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Verse 7, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. How many times? In just those seven verses, six times it tells you how long the kingdom is. And by the way, there's no place in the Old Testament and there's been no place in the New Testament till the very end of the Bible that it says how long the kingdom is to last. But it says it six times. Thousand years. Thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. How many times is that? Oh, thousand years. Okay, so it says it over and over. The kingdom is going to last a thousand years, and then there's the great white throne judgment. And some people are wondering, you know, after Satan's loosed, he goes out and he gets an army and he, and he fights against the king. Where did those people come from? Well, remember, it's saved and unsaved. And the influence of evil, the flesh is still there. And Satan is bound, but when he's loosed, he has no problem gathering an army. And that's how the kingdom on earth in that form ends. Eventually, it will continue on. But that's a different story. Anybody uh, have any questions? I'm, I'll be glad to be up here. And I have to say that some of the things I did say, you know, people have different opinions about. It, so that's, that's fine. But I, I have, I, I really do think that this dispensation of the kingdom being something that Satan hates Israel because he sees that. He sees what will be coming, that Israel will be the, the part of. And if you're thinking, well, is God going to really keep his promise to Israel? I mean, they, they turned their back on him. Well, in the same way that I know he'll keep John 3.16 for me. When he makes a promise, an unconditional promise, he'll keep it. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this time today to look, and Father, especially to see maybe behind the scenes of Satan's hatred for Israel and why we just see it manifested in people's hatred. But it's uh, inspired by something much deeper, much more horrible. And Father, we thank you for the scriptures that give us this information about this coming kingdom. We know that's not our job to set it up. It will be you and Jesus. But Father, we pray that it would come. In Jesus' name, amen.